Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 26. Last week, I worked through the entirety of the First Intermediate Period, covering in as much depth as possible the litany of rulers that made up the divided and tumultuous time. If you missed that episode, you should go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm beginning the history of the Middle Kingdom, going into depth on the rulers that controlled the area when Abram, accompanied by his family, is thought to have journeyed to the region. So let's get started. The Middle Kingdom was between about 2050 and 1710 BC, and it's in this time period where it's believed Abram journeyed to Egypt and tried to pass his wife, known at the time as Sarai, off as his sister. And before covering that part of Egyptian history, Let's circle back to Genesis, just for a minute. The story, as found in Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 10, and from the New Revised Standard Version. Now, there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to reside there as an alien, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know well that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. And then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared on your account. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. When the officials of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house and for her sake he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female slaves, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say, She is my sister? so that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife, take her and be gone. And Pharaoh gave his men orders concerning him, and they set him on the way, with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him, into the Negev." Keep in mind that these events, the ones found in Genesis, probably occurred during the Middle Kingdom, the subject of this week's episode. More specifically, this episode concerns the rulers and events towards the beginning of the Middle Kingdom, around the year 2000 BC, when it's believed Abram made his journey. Okay, with that short review out of the way, back to Egypt we go. The Middle Kingdom began with the reunification of Egypt under Pharaoh Mentuhotep II of the 11th dynasty. It would last through the next dynasty, the 12th. But the dividing line between the Middle Kingdom and the period that followed, the Second Intermediate Period, isn't static. Some researchers include the 13th dynasty of Egypt in the Middle Kingdom. For those who do adhere to this belief, they do so because Pharaoh Mernefer I, who ruled around the early portion of the 17th century BC, was the last king of this dynasty to be attested in both Upper and Lower Egypt. So, 
He was probably the last ruler of the period to reign over a unified land. And in the time from the beginning of the Middle Kingdom to the end, a whole lot of stuff happened. As a refresher, during the First Intermediate Period, which I covered in the last episode, two rival dynasties, specifically the 10th and the 11th dynasties, fought over power for the entire country. The 10th dynasty essentially ruled over Lower Egypt, with their power centered in Heracleopolis. The 11th controlled Southern Egypt, with their capital at Thebes. These two dynasties were in a constant struggle to control the entirety of Egypt. Then along came Mentuhotep II, who assumed the throne around 2055 BC. And he was the son of Entef III. Mentuhotep inherited a large kingdom that spanned from the first cataract of the Nile in the south to Abadias and Jebu in the north. His first 14 years are recorded as being relatively peaceful, with really no substantial conflict worthy of being recorded in the annals of history. But such a situation was not permanent, as conflict with their rival to the north was inevitable. Some inscriptions record his 14th year as the year of the crime at Thinis. This probably refers to the conquest of the Thinite region by the Hierarchiopolitan kings of the 10th dynasty. In doing so, they may have defiled the ancient sacred royal necropolis of Abadios. But there was something else occurring. Mentuhotep took advantage of a revolt in a 10th dynasty nome when the lower Egyptian rulers were distracted by this internal strife. So what did he do? Well, he attacked the tent's capital at Heracleopolis, an attack that was easily successful with the tent's rulers toppled, maybe even executed. But Merikar, the king of the tenth, may have died in the battle, further weakening his kingdom. And just like that, the two dynasties were now one. The history of his exploits were reinforced in the 20th century when the tombs of warriors at Deir al-Bari were discovered. This single tomb contained the linen-wrapped, unmummified bodies of 60 soldiers, all killed in battle, their shrouds displaying Mentuhotep II's hieroglyph. Due to its proximity to the Theban royal tombs, the warrior's tomb is believed to contain the very warriors who died during the conflict between Mentuhotep II and his Theban enemies of the 10th dynasty. He spent the next 25 years defeating one Nam after another, until they were all under his control. This period is believed to have been one fraught with insecurity and strife, as evidenced by the graves of even commoners containing weapons. Also, the funerary monuments of officials show them holding weapons instead of the usual royal regalia. In his 39th year, in 2014 BC, the Middle Kingdom had officially arrived, and he didn't stop in his territorial expansion. He also regained Sinai, the peninsula having been lost when the Old Kingdom was in its death spiral. Mentuhotep sent military campaigns south into Nubia, which had succeeded from the Empire during the dissolution of the Old Kingdom. In fact, it was at this time that Nubia was first referred to as Kush, at least in Egyptian records. There are also records of military campaigns into Canaan. During the period, the pharaoh reorganized the government, 
again placing a vizier at the head of the administration. Thinking back to the last episode, I covered the role of the so-called nomarchs in the demise of the Old Kingdom, essentially the part they played in the decentralization of the government. Throughout the first intermediate period, and until Mentuhotep's reign, the nomarchs held important powers over Egypt. Their office had become hereditary during the 6th dynasty, and the collapse of a central power assured their broad autonomy over their respective noms. After the unification of Egypt, however, Mentuhotep began to re-centralize rule over the land. He, and his government, reinforced his royal authority by creating the post of Governor of Upper Egypt and a separate post of Governor of Lower Egypt. And these two governors had power over the local nomarchs. Mentuhotep also relied on a mobile force of royal court officials who further controlled the actions of these nomarchs. But that wasn't all. The nomarchs who supported the 10th dynasty, such as the governor of Sut, completely lost their power. His changes were not only to the military and government, though. In order to cement his power, he restored the cult of the ruler, depicting himself as a god in his own lifetime. This was symbolically signaled by his donning of the headdress of a moon in men. This deification of the pharaoh would continue for the next 200 or so years, through the 12th dynasty. But his changes were not just to the administration, military, and religion. He also had temples built for his worship. And there's an interesting tidbit in the construction of his temples. Apparently, most of the temple decoration is the work of local Theban artists. So, these would have been done in the style he was used to, that of the 11th dynasty. Their artistic style can be seen in the depiction of people with large lips and eyes, along with thin bodies. But curiously, his wives' chapels were probably completed by Memphite craftsmen. These were largely influenced by the style and customs of the Old Kingdom. The competing artistic styles is thought to have been a carryover result of the First Intermediate Period, and an outcome of the political fragmentation of that place and era. The remains of the temple were uncovered in the 19th and 20th centuries AD, so just about 4,000 years after they were built. At the site were four pits dug into the ground, thought to have been placed there before the construction of the actual temple, and probably serving as a sort of ritual related to the construction. Think of it as the laying of a cornerstone. In these pits were the remains of the original offerings, specifically a cow's skull, pitchers and bowls filled with fruits, barley, and bread, and a mud brick bearing Mentuhotep II's name. Later excavations uncovered additional food offerings such as bread and beef ribs, bronze objects, a scepter, and fabric. The fabric was marked with red ink at the corner, seven bearing the name of Mentuhotep II, and three with the name of Entef II. Mentuhotep ruled for 51 years, with the current thinking that he died around 1995 BC. And, as a reminder, Rabbitic Judaism believes that Abram journeyed to Egypt around 2000 BC, plus or minus about 50 years. So, all of the things I just covered during the reign of Mentuhotep II could have occurred when Abram tried to pass Sarai off as his wife. 
and the Pharaoh mentioned in Genesis, that could have been him. His tomb was adjacent to a courtyard that contained a long rectangular flower bed. The garden also had 55 sycamore and 8 tamarisk trees planted in deep pits, all filled with soil. The garden was documented enough that it is one of the few from the region and era that enough is known about to allow reconstruction. Also of note, it was located almost a mile, or over one kilometer from the Nile, meaning that it needed a dedicated irrigation system. Mentuhotep II was succeeded by his son, Mentuhotep III. He would rule for only 12 years, but he continued the policies of his father, primarily continuing to consolidate Theban rule over all of Egypt. He would also construct a string of forts in the eastern delta region in order to protect Egypt against threats from Asia. And remember, this is along the route Abram would have to travel to get to Egypt from Canaan. Mentuhotep III renewed the Old Kingdom expeditions to Punt, sending a flotilla from the Wadi Hammamat on the Red Sea. The expedition was reinforced by 3,000 soldiers and sailors who left from Koptos. Somewhere along the way, they dug 12 wells for future expeditions and cleared the region of rebels. They returned from Punt with incense, gum, and perfumes, and stones quarried from the Wadi Hammamat. And that's about it for the third. He was succeeded by Mentuhotep IV, or it's at least thought so by some sources. But the fourth's name cannot be found on any of the major king lists. The Turin list asserts that after the third, there were, quoting, seven kingless years, end quote. But the fourth's name is found on a few inscriptions at the Wadi Hammamet. The inscriptions document an expedition to the Red Sea coast to mine stone for the royal monuments. The leader of this expedition was recorded as number four's vizier, Aminuhet, who is widely thought to be the future pharaoh Aminahet I, the first king of the 12th dynasty. It's theorized that the fact that number four's name is missing from the list may be due to Aminahet being a usurper and therefore wanting to erase his predecessor from the collective memory, which, if true, he did a pretty good job of, except for those pesky inscriptions. To be clear, there are no documents that record any sort of succession struggle, at least none found thus far, so it may be as simple as the fourth dying without a male heir. But there is a little circumstantial evidence that may indicate a civil war at the end of the 11th dynasty. A single inscription found at Hermopolis suggests that Aminahet was attacked at a place called Shidesa by the forces of the reigning king, but Aminahet's forces defeated the royal troops. There is also the theory that Aminahet had Mentuhotep IV killed. Apparently, Numhotep I, an official under Aminahet, claims to have participated in a flotilla of 20 ships to pacify Upper Egypt, and these are the only real artifacts that speak to the transfer of power. Now, it's relatively certain that Aminahet was not born into royalty, but still managed to take the throne. And that gets us to the 12th dynasty, 
and around the year 1991 BC. So, still in the period when Abram may have entered the kingdom. Obviously, the next ruler was Amenahet I, who ruled from 1991 to 1962 BC. Amenahet, since he was not a royal by birth, needed to over-cement his claim to the throne. This was accomplished through their literature and architecture. More on the literature, well, propaganda really, in a minute. Architectural changes included a reversion to the pyramid-style complexes resembling those of the 6th dynasty rulers. He also moved the capital from Thebes to Ijawi. It's thought by some that this move was in part to protect the capital from potential outside invaders, and, to our detriment, at least in understanding more about his reign, the actual location of this city has been lost to the ravages of history. He continued the tradition restarted by a predecessor of the partial deification of the pharaoh, which aided him in promoting and increasing the power of the centralized government. He promoted himself in other ways, too. Amenahep strengthened his claim to royal and divine authority with propaganda. A writing known as the Prophecy of Nefertiti dates to about this time. It claims to be an oracle of an old kingdom priest who predicts a king, specifically Amenahet I, arising from the far south of Egypt to restore the kingdom after centuries of chaos. How very convenient. He continued to rely heavily on a vizier, and also had a high steward for the day-to-day -day administration of the government. But he couldn't completely and immediately displace the nomarchs. So, instead, he embarked on a campaign of incrementalism. He never really held absolute power, at least not as was seen by his old kingdom predecessors. As you surely know by now, during the first intermediate period, the governors of the Noms, the Nomarchs of Egypt, gained considerable power. Their post had become hereditary. And I haven't mentioned this little bit before, and it's been true throughout history, even outside of Egypt. It turns out that many of the Nomarchs entered into marriage alliances with the Nomarchs of neighboring Noms. But Amenahet wasn't going to give up easily. In order to strengthen his royal power, Amenahet required registration of land, modified Nom borders, and appointed Nomarchs directly when offices became vacant. Overall, though, in many cases, he acquiesced to the Nomarch system, possibly to prevent a full-out rebellion, but also to cement relationships with friendly Nomarchs who supported him. So, in essence, the Middle Kingdom, at least while Amenahet was ruling, wasn't as much of a dictatorship as it was a feudal system. It was in this period that the pharaohs tended to muster a standing army. They would stand on guard against an invading neighbor while also leading expeditions to the upstream portions of the Nile or into the Sinai. The defensive forces tended to be in three locations, the first cataract of the Nile, in the delta, and across the Sinai Peninsula. It appears that there were military expeditions against people in Asia, maybe from Canaan, and also against the Nubians. And there was something else he did differently. 
In his 20th year of rule, Amenhotep established his son, Sanuret I, as his co-regent. This was, as far as we know so far, the first time such a system would be used in ancient Egypt. And it wasn't the last. In doing so, he established a practice which would be used repeatedly throughout the Middle Kingdom and even again in the New Kingdom. It was a bit revolutionary, and it served to ensure a smoother transition. Probably the most interesting part about his reign is how he met his demise. What we know about it is from a literary work of the era, and before I quote it, a little context concerning the first-person nature of the account. His son and co-regent, Sanuret I, was away on a military campaign. In the actual contemporary literature reads, quoting, Now His Majesty has sent an army into the land of the Tejmu, which means the Libyans, his eldest son as the captain thereof, the goodly god Sanuraset. He had been sent to smite the foreign countries and to take prisoner the dwellers in the Tejnu land. And now indeed he was returning and had carried off living prisoners of the Tejnu and all kinds of cattle, limitless." End quote. At some point, the crown prince apparently has a dream where his father recounted how he died. From the work, quoting, It was after supper, when night had fallen, and I had spent an hour of happiness. I was asleep upon my bed, having become weary, and my heart had begun to follow sleep. When weapons of my council were wielded, I had become like a snake of the necropolis. As I came to, I awoke to fighting, and found that it was an attack of the bodyguard. If I had quickly taken weapons in my hand, I would have made the wretches retreat with a charge. But there was none mighty in the night, none who can fight alone. No success will come without a helper. Look, my injury happened while I was without you when the entourage had not yet heard that I would hand over to you, when I had not yet sat with you, that I might take counsels for you, for I did not plan it, I did not foresee it, and my heart had not taken thought of the negligence of servants." Overall, there is a general consensus that he was assassinated, and maybe by his own bodyguards, as found in this passage. His son and co-regent, Sanuaret, rushed home to prevent a takeover of the government. Aminahet was buried in Elish, a location south of Cairo, in a pyramid, once again harkening back to the earlier traditions. But most of the pyramid was scavenged by stone thieves, and only a small earthen mound remains today. So Aminahet was succeeded by his son, Sanuaret I. And Sunuraset continued, many of the policies and practices began, or at least restarted by his father. He continued to directly appoint nomarchs. He also undercut the autonomy of the local priesthoods by building religious centers throughout Egypt. While he reigned, Egyptian armies pushed south into Nubia as far as the second cataract and built a border fort at Buin. This had the effect of incorporating all of Lower Nubia as an Egyptian colony. In the west, he took over control of various oases, 
and extended trade contacts into Syria-Palestine as far as Ugarit, a port in what is today northern Syria, near the border with Turkey. Finally, during his 43rd year of reigning, Sunaraset appointed his son Aminahet II as co-regent, which was timely because Sunaraset I died just three years later, which gets me to 1919 BC. As you would be correct in suspecting, Sunaraset I was succeeded by this co-regent. Aminahet II's reign has been characterized as being mostly peaceful, but there are some records that indicate there were some military confrontations. Inscriptions on temple walls at Todd in Memphis contain both descriptions of peace treaties with certain Syrio-Palestinian cities, but also military conflict with others in the same region. And remember, this was the region from which Abraham traveled to Egypt in the same time period. Other records show that he sent a campaign through Lower Nubia to inspect Wawat, an outer portion of the Nubian region. He also sent an expedition to Punt, and he did differ from his father and grandfather in one respect. Apparently, he stopped appointing nomarchs and allowed the office to return to being inheritable. In his 33rd year, he appointed his son, Sunuraset II, as co-regent. He would die two years later in 1895 BC. And with that, I've covered in a reasonable depth of detail the period when Abram probably traveled to Egypt. And with his own eyes, he would have seen a strengthening central government supplemented by local nomarchs, a military that conducted campaigns in all compass directions, including to his homeland of Canaan a pharaoh who had re-established himself as a deity, and a strengthening economy. All of this convincing enough for him to allow his wife to be taken in by the pharaoh. And with that, I'll end this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue the history of the Middle Kingdom. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, please go to iTunes, or wherever you receive the podcast from, and leave a 4 or 5 star positive review. For those of you that have, you are helping others to find the podcast. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there be sure to like the page so that it's easier for you to find later. And finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, do subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.